which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether, whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. The grass withers and the flower fades. Well, please pray with me. Father, thank you that faith is not worthless because Christ has been raised. And it remains your intention and your desire to release people on this day from their sins through the power of your son's work. I thank you that your heart's intention and purpose remain steady and that you hold the gospel of grace out to all who hear and read this morning. Father, I pray now for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to take of what belongs to your son, Jesus in his work and in the reality of his resurrection and to glorify him by disclosing that work to everyone here, Christian and non-Christian. Thank you for the reminder of this text that the gospel is just as much for Christians as it is for non-Christians. And Father, we do pray again that today from your glorious throne you would bestow the gift of salvation upon those who do not yet know Christ. Make this the day in which they discover that through Christ you've released them from their sins and brought them to yourself. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what we celebrate this morning on Easter is, is really the same thing that we celebrate every Sunday. 
And it is the present power and the present willingness of Jesus Christ to change real lives of real people in the way that matters most in the universe. That is to free them from their sins, to free you and me from our sins and to reconcile us to God. That's the promise that God holds out to everyone through this text this morning. It is a magnificent promise, and it is here 365 days a year and will be here until the Lord returns or you perish, uh, whichever is sooner. Now, what we see in our passage is that the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that all of this glorious generosity of God's heart That all of it, its reality, its trustworthiness, all of it depends on one single fact. And if you take that fact away, nothing remains. And the fact is the literal bodily resurrection of the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. I want to show you, I want to show you the power of what Paul is teaching the Corinthians and through his letter to them, us as well, by examining two parts of our text. And I've labeled them this. There's one fact and there are three faces in our text this morning. The one fact is the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the three faces belong to three apostles. The Apostle Peter, that's who Cephas is. That's Paul's uh, favorite name for Peter. And then the Apostle James, this is uh, the brother of Jesus. And then the Apostle Paul, last of all. So whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian who's uh, visiting with us, your greatest need, uh, the collective need that we have this morning is our greatest need is the same. And it is to encounter either again or for the first time, uh, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and to uh, become acquainted or reacquainted, as the case may be, with his present willingness and power to change your real life forever. Let's look first at the one fact, uh, Jesus' literal bodily resurrection. And at first I want to think with you about how how Paul builds his argument in this passage. It's important to see that 1 Corinthians 15 and what we celebrate on Easter, um, despite how Easter is often parodied in our popular culture, we are not talking about a symbolic metaphor. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not about spring. It's not about the vernal equinox. It's not a squishy metaphor for renewal or new beginnings. No, Christianity does not rest on a metaphor. It rests on a fact. And so what is called for each of us to do is to use the minds that God has given us to think. And that's what Paul does in this passage. And he builds his, he calls us to think. He thinks through facts and their implications. And the first aspect of what he does is he loads up the stakes of the argument very plainly. One of the reasons I have grown to trust the Bible so much is its honesty. I came to Christ as a 19-year-old college student. And one of the things that has increasingly struck me over the years is how 
honest the Bible is. It makes concessions and admissions and all kinds of acknowledgments that you would not expect to find in a document if it were contrived or if Christianity and its central claims were made up by men. It tells you things that are on their face, the kind of things that if you were making it up, you wouldn't put in. And the passage this morning is a case in point. Uh, When I practice law, one of the things I learned to do is to always emphasize the strengths of your case while you knew where the weakness was, but never to put the weakness in the front. You don't have to be a lawyer to know that that's not how you win arguments, right? What we all tend to do is major on our strengths and try to de-emphasize the weakness. And what Paul does here is he puts the what what is the what is potentially the linchpin of his whole argument what is the linchpin of his whole argument he puts it right up front says there it is and if that didn't happen all of this is ridiculous now that's remarkable and you would only do that if you had a very high degree of confidence that what you put forward was not in fact a vulnerability but was a was an in fact a strength look at what paul does He's just flat out, uh, breathtakingly honest. He's a man of facts, and he says this very plainly. Christianity rises or falls on a single fact. The literal bodily resurrection of the man, Christ Jesus, the third day after he was crucified and died on a Roman cross, period. And there's no room for fudging. There's no room for hiding behind uh, the, the veil of a metaphor. This isn't allegory. It's an argument based on evidence. And it leads to certain conclusions. Unless the corpse, the crucified corpse of the man, Jesus of Nazareth, literally came to life again in that tomb, nothing remains of Christianity. It is utterly pointless and vain. It means that the Bible, if he was not raised, it means that the Bible is false, right? Verse 4 says that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. If he was not raised, the Bible is false. If he was not raised, the Gospel is a lie. If he was not raised, the cross was just another brutal Roman execution. If he was not raised, then all the gatherings and worship of the church have no, have no more correspondence with actual reality than a Star Trek convention. And if he was not raised, Jesus Christ was the worst snake oil salesman in the history of the universe. Everything hinges on that one point. Notice how dramatic what Paul's argument uh, is doing really is. He's saying something that you would not expect a Christian to say, perhaps, which is that the cross is not enough. The crucifixion of the Son of God is not enough to save anyone by itself. That the 
the good news of the gospel necessarily depends on there being something more that happened, something more that occurred than just the crucifixion of Jesus. Unless he was raised after he died on the cross, there is no gospel. You don't just give 50%, you go to zero. You flatline. And he makes this point in two ways. Number one, if you look at verses three and four, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Okay, that's the crucifixion. That's what we remembered uh, with great joy uh, on Friday night. And number four, notice the gospel doesn't end there. And going on into verse four, and that he was buried, so he was really dead. This is not a swoon. He was really clinically dead. The brain waves stopped. The heart stopped beating. There was no more respiration. There was no blood circulating in his veins. His organs were not operating. He was dead. And he was buried. But notice the gospel doesn't end there. The gospel continues and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So in Paul's mind, if all you have is the cross and all you have is the earthquake and the darkening of the sky and the tearing of the temple veil in two, you don't have anything. You're still in your sins. And the church is a big, hollow show. And then he makes it a second way, makes the same point a second way. It's the whole force, it's the whole burden in verses 12 through 19. The reason verses 12 through 19 exist is because he's just expanding on this whole thought that unless the resurrection is there, he just kind of spins out the particulars. If you don't have, uh, if Christ was not literally raised, then we are, uh, uh, you know, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. Uh, those uh, Christian relatives of yours who've died before you, they're not enjoying any kind of eternal benefit. Um, and on top of that, you are still in your sins. And then he concludes in verse 19 with something that uh, makes the argument, just kind of closes the argument off very graphically. He says, if, if our hope, if we trusted in Christ only to hope in this life, We are the biggest fools on planet Earth. See, everything depends on the resurrection. Now, why is that? What is it about the resurrection? How does it fit in with the rest of the core Christian message? And this is so important. I mean, I know you guys all know the word resurrection. I know you know that. But do you know why the resurrection is essential for the gospel to be good news? And that's what we're focusing on this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a means by which the Father makes two astonishing declarations. Now, the cross, the world was making a declaration about Jesus Christ at the cross. And what the world was saying about Jesus Christ at the cross was that Here is the worst category of person. He is not to be revered or regarded highly. He is to be rejected and that the world will be better off for getting rid of him. That's that was what the world was declaring at the cross. But in the resurrection, what the father does is he overturns that verdict. 
and says, no, the world will not have the last say because the glory of my son is too great. So I will raise him from the dead. And when I raise him from the dead, there are two declarations that I am making. And the first is that by raising him from the dead, what the father is declaring is that Jesus Christ is savior. He alone is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus is raised from the dead, the father is certifying that the sacrifice of atonement, which he presented through his own body on Good Friday, that that sacrifice was full and complete and satisfactory to satisfy all the claims of God's justice against our sins. It is the Father's certification that joins with the Son's declaration from the cross when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross and died. The Father agreed and says, yes, it is finished and raised him from the dead. So what is being declared is that the Son has triumphed over all of our sins and has fully exhausted the price that had to be paid for our sins. We know from Romans 623, that the wages of sin are death. As we sin, what we earn is death. When Jesus became our substitute on the cross, he identified and gathered into himself, as it were, all the sins of his people for all times. He became the substitute of his people on that cross. And as he gathered all those sins to himself, along with those sins... Under God's wrath came all of the wages that were due our sins. All of the wages for your sins and for mine were paid out by the Father to the Son on the cross. You need to think about that. Some of you think that you've experienced the consequences of your sin, and you have. But only the most insignificant portion of the consequences of your sins. The true justice due for our sins was paid out like wages to the Son of God on the cross. And he went willingly. And the Father put him up as a guarantor to spare us from having to pay a debt which we are not capable of paying. And when those Wages were paid in full and death no longer had a claim or sin no longer had a claim over Jesus because he had more than paid. He was raised from the dead to certify that there is nothing left to pay. (laughs) Nothing left. If you are in Christ You have been severed by God's work from all your sins. When Jesus rose from the dead, death and sin no longer had a claim over him. That connection was severed in the resurrection. And it was severed for everyone who looks to Christ and puts their confidence in him. If you look to Christ as your sin bearer, as the one whom God has put forward to pay or to receive the wages for your sin, if you realize and trust that God has put him forward to do that as your substitute and you yield to him, then that same connection between the judgment of God and your sins 
will be severed in your life as well, all by the work of the Son. That is totally wonderful news. And it is the first, it's only the beginning of what God declares at the cross. There's a second declaration that the Father makes in the resurrection. And it is this. Not only is Jesus Savior, but He is also Lord. In other words, what Jesus' resurrection validates is that Jesus has been declared the King of the cosmos. And that's not an exaggeration. Did you pay attention to the call to worship this morning from Ephesians 1, where Paul is uh, meditating on the triumph of Christ and what the Father did, and he says that all these things, these blessings, are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, that's the Father's might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He's put all things in subjection under His feet and given Him as head over all things to the church. That's kingly language. And the resurrection is the opening phase of Jesus' coronation as King of the cosmos, as Lord. It's the opening part of the ceremony that reaches its climax when he is exalted to the Father's right hand. And the Father is saying in the resurrection of the Son, He is Savior and He is Lord. His sacrifice is sufficient And because he is Lord, you are obligated to yield your immediate submission and loyalty and allegiance and love and devotion to him. You are obligated to do that. Because there is no other sacrifice appointed for sins in the universe God has made. And there is no other king to whom you can legitimately give your heart, especially not the one in the mirror Now, the opportunity to hear the gospel creates the obligation to respond to the gospel. If you hear the news about Christ, then you are obligated to respond by repentance and faith. I, as a pastor, am morally bound. I am morally bound to tell you the truth about Christ's claims as Lord over your life. I am morally bound in the presence of God to tell you, to call you on the basis of what the Father has declared at the resurrection of the Son. I am morally bound to tell you that it is your obligation now to yield your life, to repent of your sins and to yield your life to God's Son, Jesus. God is going to ask me when I appear before Him It is judgment seat. He's going to ask me about Easter 2009. He's going to ask me, did you faithfully tell the unbelievers about my son? I'm going to face that question. And you are morally bound to respond to the news about who Jesus is. God does not give you the opportunity to hear the gospel without obligating you to respond to the gospel. And God is going to ask you about Easter 2009 and what you did with what you heard when you appeared before him. 
What's the proof? You notice there's a lot of proof for the resurrection in this passage. And Paul uh, relies on the best kind of proof there is. It's called eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. He gives six instances of eyewitness testimony. You see that? Six instances of eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And notice, it's a lot more than six people. It's probably very close to 600 people who saw the risen Lord. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, he appeared to Cephas or Peter. In verse 5, he also appeared to the twelve. Now, the twelve is... Uh, you're saying, well, wait a second, what about Judas? You're right. There were only 11. And Luke talks about there only being 11 after Judas left. Well, the 12 is a term. uh, It's like a label that Paul uses to refer to the collective body of the closest disciples and apostles. Then verse 6, he says, and this is what we get from the Apostle Paul that we don't get from anyone else in the New Testament. Then he appeared to more than five, on one occasion, he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some of whom have fallen asleep. In other words, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is he's saying, guys, there are almost 500 people who are still alive today who saw the risen Lord. And if you went to Palestine, you could go and talk to them. Now, you don't say that kind of thing if you're not confident that those witnesses exist. That's remarkable what he's saying. So the witnesses were not just the apostles, not just the inner circle. And then in verse 7, he says they appeared to James, who we know is the Lord's brother. And then the apostles, which would be wider than the twelve. That apostle in, in uh, Paul's writings can refer uh, much more broadly than the twelve. Um, it, can, it can refer to anybody who's sent out by Jesus, because apostle literally means sent out one. And he might be thinking here of the 70 who were sent out in uh, Luke 10. Don't know for sure. And then last of all, we have the Apostle Paul. So the proof of the resurrection, everything, everything funnels down on this one point, which is the resurrection. And we've said that the resurrection is the linchpin of the gospel's good news, because in it we find and through it, God proves that the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient and that he is now Lord and entitled to your immediate devotion and obedience. And Paul says, how do we know the resurrection happened? We know because of eyewitnesses. And so you're probably saying, well, Mike, come on. Um, I'd believe, too, if I saw the risen Lord. If he appeared to me, I'd believe. Well, don't be so sure. But let me suggest two things that I want to encourage you to think about in response to that objection. The first is, uh, notice how Paul treats the resurrection of Christ in the same way that we already treat most historical events. You and I, if we're honest about it, have not been personal eyewitnesses to most of history. Right? I mean, most of history has either happened before our life or out of our presence. Correct? Okay, see, now what I'm trying to do now is to get you to think. God gave you brains. He wants you to work with evidence. 
He wants you to think it through. God gave you the brain and the mind and thought processes so that ultimately they would be vehicles for his glory. Now, track with me here. Most of history happens outside of our presence. And so how do you account for the fact that we believe in so many things that we did not directly witness? Well, here's how. We rely on eyewitnesses. The closer in time to the event, the better. And there are all kinds of factors that we use that I'll talk about in a minute that we use to evaluate the trustworthiness of eyewitnesses. But friends, we already do this all the time. So what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15 is no different from what we do the rest of our time. The Corinthians, and this is my second observation, the Corinthians, what Paul is calling the Corinthians to do is exactly the same thing he's calling us to do through this text. The Corinthians had access to exactly the same information that you and I do. None of the Corinthians were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And yet from nowhere, this church was created by the power of God. And yet nobody in the church except the apostle who brought the news of the resurrection of Christ had actually seen the the risen Lord. So how is it that the Corinthians came to believe in the crucifixion, the resurrection of the Lord? They relied upon the apostles' words, the apostles' report. They were not eyewitnesses themselves, but they had access to an eyewitness and the eyewitness appeared to them to be trustworthy. They tested his claims. They listened to him. They evaluated it. And then guess what? They trusted in that event. Now, friends, that's exactly the same position that you and I are in. We have access to exactly the same evidence that they did. The words of an apostle which is just the same way that we evaluate 99.99% of the historical events that we trust occurred and, in fact, that we arrange our life around. Now, how do you evaluate an eyewitness? You should know this from watching Law and Order and other things like that, right? And there are three, there are three big factors. When you're evaluating an eyewitness, there are three big factors That you look at first is, did the witness have an opportunity to observe the event? Well, in this case, unless from the beginning you exclude all possibility of anything supernatural happening in the universe. Which you can't prove. That's where you begin. But you can't prove that. Because you've not witnessed every event in the history of the universe. Hello? But conceding that it might be possible that a supernatural event could happen, then in this case, there's no reason to disbelieve the fact that the apostles and the others had the opportunity to observe the risen Lord. So that's factor one. And that does not go against Paul's eyewitness accounts. Factor two is... You will discount an eyewitness's report if it appears that the eyewitness is suffering from some kind of mental um, instability or some kind of intellectual defect. In other words, um, they had an opportunity to observe, but, but what they saw, they have either misunderstood or misinterpreted because of some kind of defect uh, intellectually or they've ju- they're just mistaken. Now, here's what makes it hard 
to make that objection stick in this case. In order for that to work here, notice what has to happen. You have to believe that in each of the six instances, which involves almost 600 people probably, that they all simultaneously, not simultaneously, but on different occasions, each and all of them suffered from the same mental instability, or at least to the point where none of them could be trusted in their evaluations of what they saw. That's just a whole lot of speculation to hook your eternal destiny to, in my opinion. That's just outlandish. What's the third factor? Oh, and let let me say this about that second factor. One of the ways that you would evaluate whether it appears that the witness has any mental instability is to read things that the witness wrote. And so I ask you if you have really read uh, the New Testament documents. If you're not Christian, if you've really read the New Testament in any way to be able to form an opinion about whether or not these men um, appear to give evidence of mental instability or some kind of intellectual defect, I guarantee you that you will find that that is not the case. So the third factor is, well, you'll discount an eyewitness's testimony if the eyewitness has a motive to lie, to fabricate testimony. In this case, that doesn't hold true. Let me tell you why. Because to assert in the first century that you had seen the risen Lord Jesus got you one thing and one thing only in the world, persecution. And if you knew that it was a lie, if you knew that it was false, if you knew that you were fabricating, why in the world would you not recant before you had your eyes burned out with a poker or before you were crucified upside down or before your family members were covered with tar in Nero's garden and then lit on fire as a lamp. Why wouldn't you? The only reason you wouldn't recant is because what you had seen was true. It does not make psychological sense given what happened to the apostles and most of the other witnesses of the resurrection, it does not make psychological sense to me that they had a motive to lie. So, friends, if you are a non-Christian and you are confident that the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, I put this to you. What is your confidence based on? Is it based on your eyewitness observation of the bones of Jesus Were you there? Did you see the body decay? Why is it that the opponents of the church never produced the body of Jesus Christ? It would be exhibit A to prove that Jesus was a fraud and all his followers were fools. Where did the body go? Did his followers steal the body? Well, why would they steal the body and endure persecution? That doesn't make psychological sense either. What is it that you are trusting as confirmation for your conviction that the resurrection did not occur? I want you to think about that. Is it your own reasoning based on secondhand observations and opinions? The Bible has a word for that kind of trust. We call it faith. 
you are just as much dependent upon faith as we are as Christians on the other side of this question. And what I hope to show you here as I close is how Jesus uses his resurrection power, what he does. I, I know I've, I've made you kind of a lawyerly argument up to this point, and I rejoice in that. Because Christianity is not a metaphor. It is based on facts. 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 And my life is based on facts. Your life is made up of facts. If God's intervention in history is just a vague, happy haiku, then it isn't going to help us. Only facts will help us. Because my guilt is a fact. My sins are a fact. How about yours? My conscience is a fact. And so what I want you to see as we look at the three faces in the passage, I want you to see what Jesus does with his resurrection power. How we, we have uh, three case studies, as it were, of how Jesus uses and demonstrates his willingness and his power to change real lives. And each one of these cases involves a tremendous, either tremendous failure or indifference to Jesus, or rebellion against Jesus. These three men, Peter, James, and Paul, are just stunning as case studies. And what I hope to show you here in the last few minutes is how beautiful the grace of Jesus is and how ready he stands on the basis of these examples to extend that same grace to you this morning. Think about Peter. He appeared to Cephas. Who's Peter? Peter was a remarkable figure. If you know even just a little bit about the Gospels, you know Peter was always the first to talk. I like somebody like that, personally. He always opened his mouth first. He always fired and then got ready to aim. Always. He, he was the first, you know about Peter, he's the first to confess that Jesus was the Son of God in Matthew 16. He's the first one to rebuke Jesus for talking about the cross. He's the first one and only one to get out of the boat when Jesus is, in the, is, is standing on the lake, to walk on the water to him. He's the first one to, to speak on the mountain of transfiguration. He's the first one and only one to come to the defense of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he takes his sword and he strikes the slave's ear off. And he's also the first one to deny Jesus three times. What is it about this risen Jesus that the first one he would appear to of his apostles would be the one who had denied him? What does that show you about how Jesus intends for his resurrection victory to be deployed? You would think that this one who has now been coronated, the king of the cosmos, that the first person he would look for would be the one who denied him so he could squish him. And instead, what he does is he, he looks for the one who denied him, the one who had always led, who was always first in the list of the disciples and the apostles, who's always first, and he was first to deny him. And so Jesus is first to restore him. Peter is a picture of a Christian who has failed. He's a Christian who has fallen. And there are people like that in this room 
And what I want you to see on Easter Sunday is the readiness and the power and the willingness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ to pursue you as one who has wandered as a wayward disciple and to restore you. His grace toward you will not prove in vain, but you must lay hold of that gospel again and you must stand in it and you must hold it fast. It is a beautiful thing to see how the Lord responds to Peter, a Christian who has fallen. Remember the risen Lord's grace. James. James is a non-Christian. The Gospels indicate very clearly, both in John and in Mark, that Jesus had brothers and other family members and that none of them believed in him. Can you imagine that? I mean, that just that just absolutely blows me away. Growing up in the same house as Jesus, he's your older brother. He always does everything right. He's holy. You've seen him up close. You've seen his devotion to God is authentic. You've seen him perform miracles. And yet still, even through the crucifixion, there's no indication that James believes. And in fact, this appearance that's cited in verse 7 is really the only evidence that we have that that. Uh, about when James presumably came to faith, and it's probably after the resurrection of the Lord. James is a picture of a non-Christian who is inside the church, as it were, who has spent his whole life or her whole life around the things of Jesus, who's familiar with the outward edges of Jesus, who has a cordial relationship with Jesus, but an uncommitted one. And cordial but uncommitted is not safe. It's not enough to know things about Jesus. You must entrust yourself to him. You don't get a leg up because you're Jesus' blood brother in the family. You don't get a leg up because you grew up in the church. You have a greater responsibility. Maybe you're... Maybe you're just around Christians a lot and you're familiar enough with the basic gospel story and you think that knowledge of these things is sufficient to be saved. Well, it's not. And Jesus appears to James in his resurrection glory to make sure that James knows that it's not enough and to call him to repentance and faith in the same way that he is calling you if you are cordial but uncommitted this morning. What about Paul? Paul is a picture of a non-Christian outside the church. In fact, the the most uh, extreme version of a non-Christian outside the church, the very enemy of Jesus, the one who had made Jesus uh, the object of his wrath and hatred. And perhaps you're like that. Perhaps you've been like that. Perhaps that's in your history. It was in my history. And so I, I... I I guess I stand as a witness to you that what I see described by Paul in his own example is true. That the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ is readily available for those who are the most inveterate and vicious opponents of Jesus Christ and his people. Who mock the church, who deride him. 
this risen Lord meets the Apostle Paul. And can you imagine being the Apostle Paul and riding to Damascus? At that point, he's not the Apostle Paul. He's Saul of Tarsus. And you're riding to Damascus in order to gather up some Christians so you could bring them back to Jerusalem and try them and put them in jail and perhaps execute them for blasphemy. And then the the glory of the exalted Lord breaks in upon you and you you're blinded and you ask the question, who are you, Lord? And the answer comes, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That is not good news in that moment. And yet notice what Paul says. He says, last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This word that is translated, one untimely born, is shocking. It's, it's only used here in the New Testament, but it shows up elsewhere in Greek. And it's the word that is used to refer to miscarriages, to stillbirths, and to abortions. In other words, Paul is saying... That the grace of God came into a life where there was nothing about the life that was life. Where there was no future, where there was no hope, where there was no basis for thinking there would be any kind of inheritance. And the grace of the risen Lord came into this life of his enemy where there was no hope. No fruitfulness for God and the power of the grace of Christ where where no one else could see any hope. The power of Christ's grace came in and picked up that lifeless form and said, now I give you life. You who once were my enemy, now I put you into my service. Now, friends, Jesus today is exactly the same as he was in the first century in that sense. His grace operates according to exactly the same rules. And he is just as ready and just as powerful today to share the wealth of his resurrection triumph with all manner of people, whether you are a Christian who has wandered and weakened because of disobedience. He wants to bestow his resurrection power to call you to himself to restore you into full fellowship with Him. Whether you are a non-Christian who is near the things of God but remains uncommitted, He wants to spread the wealth of His resurrection power to win your heart, to humble you, to call you to Himself today to repent and believe in Him. Or whether you have entered this room as an enemy of Christ and now see through God's Word the generosity of this mighty one who is willing to share his resurrection victory and glory with even you. And you are ready to yield. The opportunity to hear the gospel creates the obligation before God to respond to the gospel. There is one fact at the center of today. It is the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Will your face be the fourth face that meets that glory today? Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice. 
We rejoice in your resurrection and we rejoice in the generosity of your spirit to share your triumph with sinners like us. Thank you that we have uh, the Apostle Paul's word today that says, Yet for this reason I received mercy, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. And so, Lord, I pray that on this day you would grant eternal life and grant that many would hope in you for that life. I pray in your name.